Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. The 1973 movie The Exorcist, adapted for the screen from his own book by William Peter Blatty and directed by William Friedkin, has successfully negotiated a treacherous path through the censors and public outcry, banning and reinstating, to become one of the true icons of horror cinema. The 50 years since its original release have seen The Exorcist move on to become a small part of a never-intended franchise. But The Exorcist is far more than a simple horror film. Its social importance should not be underestimated. Stephen King calls it a social horror movie. And Mark Kermode, probably the leading expert on the film and its influence, discusses how by presenting itself in a very different way to the many gothic films which came before it, it provides a commentary on the state of the world at that time, and on the United States in particular. For those of us with an interest in folklore, The Exorcist is worthy of study for two reasons. One is the effect that it's had on us socially and culturally, the urban legends that it spawned and the reaction to it. Another lies in the fact that it draws from a real-world experience, and by doing so, it provides insight into and commentary on the complex interplay between religion and the supernatural, something that we see in very many aspects of folklore through history. It's probably also responsible for helping to highlight some of the dangers and practices associated with alleged exorcisms that take place now. The recent death of director William Friedkin has served to shine an important light onto The Exorcist once again. Doing the same thing is our guest on the podcast today, Nat Segaloff, whose new study, The Exorcist, 50 Years of Fear, was published a few weeks ago. Nat is a writer, a broadcaster and film historian who's spent many years working in and on the movie and television industry. He covered the movie business for the Boston Herald and, as a writer and producer for TV, developed a number of episodes of the flagship biography series for A&D. Nat's also worked on projects for New World, Turner, Disney and HBO. Hilary Wilson spent many more hours than a healthy for one person binging exorcist-related materials to discuss the topic with Nat. Yeah, hi, this is Hilary Wilson here for the Folklore Podcast. And today I'm going to talk to Nat Siegeloff, who has done just about everything you can possibly imagine within the film and writing <laughs> industry. You know, welcome to the podcast, Nat. Hilary, it's good to talk to you as always. Yeah, and uh, we're here to talk about The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear. I have my copy here that you can kind of see. But yeah, you were tackling The Exorcist, but not just the movie here, but the entire franchise, which a lot of people right now don't even realize that it was a franchise because the original movie eclipses everything. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in The Exorcist, you know, your relationship to it, and we can go from there. All right. Uh, the Exorcist was not supposed to be a franchise. In fact, I didn't even use the term franchise in the early 1970s. And yes, you were opening a McDonald's. Franchise is the name they give to something 
instead of calling it a sequel, because a sequel is a kind of a pejorative. But I was involved with The Exorcist professionally from the day before it opened. It opened on December 26, 1973, and I was a publicist for the Boston movie theater chain that was showing it. Now, because it was opening on the 26th, some of the newspapers, the weekly newspapers, which catered to the student audience that we really had to get to, would have been delayed a week because of their deadlines in reviewing the film, and it was clearly the hottest film of the year. So one of the critics for one of the papers, his name was Stuart Byron, actually contacted William Friedkin saying, could we screen it a day in advance so the underground press could have a little bit of a lead time on it? And Friedkin said, yes. Well, you have to remember the day before the 26th of December is Christmas Day. So the prospect of having a screening of The Exorcist on Christmas morning, and I must say, the uh, the film critics had no problem at all leaving their families to come and see The Exorcist on Christmas morning. I was stationed outside the door of the auditorium, so nobody who wasn't invited would get in. And so I didn't really see The Exorcist. I heard The Exorcist. I heard the gasps, and I heard the sound effects from the screen, but I didn't see it until a couple of days later, when, of course, standing in back of a full house, because I wasn't going to take a seat. I finally saw the movie. So that's my relationship to The Exorcist. You might say that I've been possessed by The Exorcist for 50 years. And this book, in a way, is my exorcism. I found it interesting you know, reading about how the audience was affected by the movie um, when they first saw it. You know, I, I've heard about you know, people fainting when they see it, people getting sick. But the fact that that happened so quickly and the fact that now it's almost cliche among younger people to say, oh, the exorcist isn't scary anymore. Um, you know, what do you think happened, you know, over this period of time since it was released? The first time I saw the exorcist, I didn't know I was supposed to puke. I learned that later and I must have missed that train. But people did, in fact, get sick at the exorcist. And if the theater manager was lucky, they made it outside the theater instead of doing the technicolor yawn on the lobby carpet. But something we found in Warner Brothers did some, you know, amateur research in the theaters where it was playing. It was only playing in a handful of theaters originally, was that the scene that made people run up and get out of the theater was not the crucifix scene, was not the head turning around scene, it was not any of that. It was the hospital scene where young Reagan is being given an arteriogram, and there's a spurt or two of blood that comes out of her neck. An arteriogram is an actual medical procedure, and that's when most of the people who were going to be sick got sick and ran out of the theater. Now, here's a question for you. Who do you think got sick more often, men or women? You see, I know the answer because I've read the book. But ah. I, <laughs> well, go I ahead. I think that the most beans. people you know, would assume that you know, women would be getting sick more. That's just the way that you know, people think about these things. Yeah, which wasn't the case, was it? It was the men yeah. who got sick. And no one really was sure about this, but the amateur psychologist at Warner Brothers said, well, women have a mothering instinct, and they're the ones who were concerned about the welfare of the child, whereas men just wanted to get the hell out of there. I would say that that particular scene... Um, watching the movie for the first time, you know, that did get a reaction out of me. I didn't puke, I didn't pass out, but I did flinch. You know, yeah, even William it. Peter Blatty kind of turns his head away, he said, when he saw that. Because it's, it's yeah. see, this is the thing. We, we can, when all Durand is blown up, it's very hard to relate to, you know, billions of people suddenly being silenced. But when one person gets a paper cut, 
that we can relate to because it's something in our lives. And so a hospital procedure is far more involving uh, than really uh, an exorcism. I was surprised by that um, watching it because I, you know, I watched The Exorcist for the first time, you know, in order to talk to you about it. And really? that surprised me. The uh, amount of, you know, medical intervention, the amount of, you know, psychiatry in it. And the other thing that surprised me was that, you know, reading it, watching it, Reagan didn't come across as the main character to me. Damien did. And there's so little discussion in people talking about it casually online about Damien as compared to about Reagan and Chris. And that's something that really you know, caught me off guard because mm. you know, he's the main character, you know, to me at least, you know, in watching it. We should probably tell any listeners and viewers that there are a ton of spoilers in this interview. So yes, if you haven't seen I... The Exorcist by now, you've had 50 years to do it. What are you waiting for? Um, the, the Karis is, of course, the, the focus of part of what the demon is doing. He has lost mm -hmm. his faith. He is a, a, a medical doctor. Then he became a priest and a psychiatrist. And the uh, church sent him to all of this education. And yet he was unable to help his mother who died of pretty much neglect in New York because he didn't have the money. So his vow of poverty really did have highly personal consequences. And his faith has been shaken. And of course, the demon knows this and uses it against him. At the same time, the demon is going for everybody else. There's a scene in a longer version of the movie, which is not the original version. I think it's called the version you've never seen, where in between exorcisms, Damien Karras and Father Marin are in the stairwell of the McNeil home. And... Karis is saying, why, why is the demon doing this? Why does the demon choose a child as a victim? And Marin said, well, the child is not so much the victim, but the, the demon wants us to look at ourselves and how vile we are. And how could God possibly love any life form like us who is as disgusting as we are? And that's a pretty profound statement. And it was important to William Peter Blatty, who was rather ticked off when William Friedkin took it out of the film, saying he wasn't there to make a commercial for the Catholic Church. It's restoration, or it's being restored, whatever the term is, is important in helping us understand what the demon was doing. And that is a demon yeah. was challenging us in our faith and asking us, how could we survive when something like this could happen? It's a beautiful scene. I was very surprised that it was something that got cut. It, it makes sense with the argument that Friedkin was making. You know, this isn't an ad for the Catholic Church. But at the same time, it is something that's come through in so much of Blatty's work. And it is kind of the heart of the movie. Um, You're right. In a way. Very right. Yeah. Well, what, what inspired Blatty to write the thing in the first place was when he was a student at Georgetown University, there was an exorcism supposedly in nearby Cottage City, Maryland. Now, sometimes they've said Silver Spring. And since uh, we both are related to Silver Spring, we can imagine how there might have been a, an exorcism in Silver Spring, but not for that reason. They've also said- I Mount think Rainier. there's still some going on there. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I, I think Discovery still has some headquarters there. So yeah, there's, uh, there's some possession, possession going on. Uh, they've also said Bethesda, but it was Cottage City, a small town. And there was a boy who was maybe 14, and he was supposedly possessed by a demon. Blatty read this account in the Washington Post, for which, by the way, there was never a follow-up which, of course, makes it highly suspicious in the first place. But he said, well, if we can prove the existence of a demon, then we can prove the existence of a God and of life everlasting. 
And this idea dominated his thinking when he became a comedy writer in television and did all kinds of other works. And finally, when things slowed down as a comedy writer, he began to write The Exorcist and wanted to use this by saying, if we can establish firmly that there is a personified devil, then there must be a God. Now, there's no logic in that. It's like saying, if there's apples, there have to be oranges. But it certainly guided Blanding in his work, and it guided him in his life and his faith. And there are still people who are uh, trying to uncover things like the priest's diaries uh, for that particular exorcism. Um, but there was an excellent, was it an article or a book that was put out um, by Mark Opasnik? It was a book. Mark did unbelievable detective work in a book, um, O-P-S-A-S-N-I-C-K, for those who want to spend a lot of money online trying to find it. Yeah. Uh, it just remarkable detective. We're going through yearbooks, going through telephone books, uh, using the kind of deductive reasoning that would have put Sherlock Holmes into applause mode. And he was able to uncover the identity of the possessee. It has now been made public, and I certainly use it in the book. But it, uh, the priest diaries, there may, well, may have been. As far as I'm concerned, there was a fraud on the part of the church. There was never a possession. It was just something that was done to increase their power. But that's what churches do for a living. I don't believe mm. the exorcism was real. I, I believe there was an exorcism, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. There are some people who believe in it, and more power to them. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting discussion about that that's gone on. And, um, you know, Friedkin himself did a documentary uh, several years ago um, with the Vatican's exorcist that also had a lot of interesting questions uh, that could arise yeah. from from it, just in terms of, you know, what purpose exorcism serves, you know, why this is something that is still happening. That's right. And there's something that Mark Kermode, who is probably the world's leading exorcist scholar, he's a major critic in England, said, he said that the exorcist is about faith. And the documentary that Friedkin made later is about doubt. That's an interesting thing. And it's something that doesn't entirely get discussed a lot when it comes to The Exorcist as a franchise, um, just for the sole reason that in order to consume the media, you kind of have to go in assuming that the possession is real and the exorcist, you know, the exorcisms are achieving what they're meant to, you know, particularly mm -hmm. when it comes to later entries within the series. Yeah, you got to have an exorcism if you're making an exorcist movie. They didn't in, yeah. in the uh, in the second one, really, they or the third one. Well, you never know. I mean, I'm I'm losing track because there there's two versions of every movie after that. So it's very hard to keep track two. of who was exercised. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I'm waiting to see a fan edit. Maybe that'll even set the set the record straight. But it's it's something that does affect a lot of people because you know the exorcist has a power because although Blatty liked to call it a supernatural detective story, and it really is. It's about the murder of a film director, which I found vaguely threatening. But it's also um, a, a film that capitalizes on the brainwashing that's been done by churches for the past 2,000 years, inculcating in the minds of their believers that there is a devil and that the devil is a threat to us. And so when you see The Exorcist, which is why I believe many people avoid seeing the movie, you're not just seeing a so-called horror movie. You're seeing a movie that questions your faith and asks you to bring your soul into the theater. And that's something that makes it very, very powerful, far more powerful than a slasher film. The Exorcist is actually a profound religious experience for some people. 
Oh, yeah. It's something that I came across when I was talking to people about what I was reading and what I was watching you know, to prepare for the interview. Uh, so many people either said that they'd seen it once and they would never watch it again, or that they refused to watch it. And it always came down to because this is about something that's real. And I thought that was interesting because from the perspective that I had watching it, you know, this was something that was extremely, you know, faith affirming. And it's a you know, fairly uplifting movie in a lot of ways, you know, because you you have the exorcism, you know, you have, you know, a person making this ultimate sacrifice and, you know, coming back into his faith, you know, you have all of these things that are extremely powerful, but, you know, it's too scary, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, for people yeah. who are very profound believers in it, which it, it, it yeah, it, it can. Now, was this the first time you'd seen it, or had you seen it before? And this was your reminder. I had read the book before, but I'd never seen the movie before. So I had the interesting experience uh, of sitting down and watching every bit of Exorcist media I could get my hands on within about the period of a month, and it was. A fascinating experience that I can't entirely <laughs> recommend for people um, because it got it got really deep into my head. Um, you know, in particular, the book Legion really got into my head with the uh, that follows Kinderman, who is the detective who was investigating the murder of the movie director in the first um, film, and it's a bit like a recreation of the Zodiac murders in a way, but in between this detective work is a lot of philosophy and a lot of uh, very rapid dialogue, very uh, humorous dialogue. And it just, it got into my head of, you know, this is a really interesting bit of cosmogony that, you know, Blatty is going into about how he imagines this universe existing within the, you know, Exorcist and Legion. Because it's the same um, argument that Marin was making in the first book yeah. about how reality and the Big Bang was Lucifer's fall and all of this stuff. And it just got into my head and then nobody wanted to talk to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Most people think it's just a horror movie, you know, and yeah. that's it. But there is the underpinning is so great. And that's that's it works. That's why it works. There's at least six different stories going on. The characters are fully developed and beautifully acted. And it's like spending time with these people who have their own troubles. I mean, look, it's a story about the murder of a movie director, it's a story about a mother who is protecting her child. It's a story about a man who has lost faith. It's a story about a priest who is going to head to head with a, another enemy. It's a story about doctors and their being ineffectual. I mean, you can keep on going on about this. Oh, God, There's yes. so much going on. Yeah, it was messing with my head going through it all. And then, of course, it had to end with the um, television series that was uh, 2016 through 2018, was it? Yeah, it was um, 20 episodes. Yeah, and it was maddening because watching it, the second season, there were shot-for-shot shot remakes of um, brief scenes from Legion within that. And you could see that they were building up to you know, a third season that would have incorporated more of all of that. And then mm -hmm. it just gets canceled. And it's yeah, there's like, a oh, man. big, big backstory in that. The, the, the showrunner became disenchanted. He had another show. The network screwed around with it. Typical television. But he's also, in fact, I asked, this is not in the book. Um, he told me quite a bit about how Fox 
not Fox News, okay, real Fox, Fox Television, and how the, yeah. the whole industry worked. And he was very frank. And I, I emailed him afterwards and said, are you sure you want to say all this? And he said, I never want to work with those people again. So it was a pretty harrowing yeah. experience for the people who made the show. It, by the way, it it, was, it's beautiful. It, it's dramatically beautifully done. It's a very well done series, but it yeah. does kind of, you know, get there for God's sake, get there. Don't take 10 episodes. It was a very fun watch and a very interesting watch. And I also can 100% understand why this show didn't get the numbers that it should have at the time that it came out because it was extremely slow, which, you know, by like modern reckoning, that's the same with the movie, the exorcist is pretty darn slow. Um, and you talked about this a little bit in the book. That was also the difference between the beginning and dominion yeah. that, you know, one is shot and paced pretty darn slow. The other one has all the action scenes and you know what the studio was demanding. So it's yeah. extremely slow. And it also just, there's a limitation on what you can do on network television that people you know, might not think of quite as much, but like a lot of the terror in The Exorcist, um, you know, you were writing was coming from the things that were coming out of Reagan's mouth. You know, all of this insanely foul language that you're not expecting this, mm -hmm. you know, 11, 12 year old kids to be coming out with. And all of that extremely foul language is something that you cannot put on network television. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Uh, your your mother still rots in hell is not the same thing that Reagan actually said in the movie. In fact, yeah. Billy Friedkin, I think, did some of the looping himself on those. Uh, yeah, but it isn't just the vulgarity of the language. It's, as you just pointed out, the conflict between it coming out of the mouth of a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, and you can't really do that. So there was interesting things that they were doing within the television series to kind of skirt around that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, how much could be implied, how much... You know, they could show through violence instead and how much violence you can get away with. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's a shame that the show didn't, you know, get a longer shake. But at the same time, yeah. you know, who knows what will come out in October. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, the TV show had the misfortune simply by timing to come along when network television was dying and streaming was coming in. And so it was really hard to really know where to place it. It hasn't been seen yeah. since, except, I guess, on, on DVD. And I hope the upcoming trilogy is going to be good. I haven't seen it, although I was in touch with the filmmaker for the book, who was very gracious, because he wasn't supposed to talk to anybody. And he did give me some uh, some good interview information. Yeah. The uh, new one is going to be coming screening. out on the 13th. Yeah, now. But, <laughs> you know, I wrote the book a year and a half ago. Oh, yeah, so. yeah. But there, there was a yeah. screening recently of um, the trailer, I think, or... Yeah. Uh, there was some kind of screening recently that got really fantastic reviews. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens. I I hope so. You know, yeah, look, I'm I'm really curious. David Gordon Green was an honorable man. He really was earnest about making it. He got Ellen Burstyn to agree to be in the first of the trilogy. Yeah. So there must be some integrity there. Beyond that, I have no idea. I just hope for the best. The people who are really to be celebrated is Morgan Creek Productions. You know, James R. Robinson, who uh, really bought the Exorcist franchise away from Bill Blatty back after The Heretic. And he made all of these sequels. He made uh, Legion, which became Exorcist Three. He made that was involved in the television series. He was involved in Dominion and then putting in more money to make it into the beginning. He's been Morgan Creek has been really heroic in stepping up and 
and making these films. And then if they didn't work to their satisfaction, they went in and did a lot of reshooting. So there's an enormous sacrifice there, an enormous hopefulness, I think, in keeping the franchise going. So, you know, I celebrate them as much as I do the filmmakers. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what's going to end up happening with it, because I I was surprised that there was an Exorcist franchise to begin with. Um, And Heretic was not exactly the uh, stellar start to all of that. (laughs) Um, Well, people might have hoped for. There was interesting stuff in it, though. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to blast for it. Well, I, I thought that there was some interesting, you know, things within it. I thought that the um, soundtrack in particular was, you know, pretty great. And I was surprised that I was surprised that there was as much that made sense within it as there was, given the reputation that it has. But at the same time, I was also the person who was staring at the extended dance sequence near the beginning and wondering what the heck was even going on. So yeah, it... John, John Borman is a gifted filmmaker when it comes to images, but his, how can I put this diplomatically? Because I like several of his films. He didn't have this skill to articulate in cinema terms what he wanted to articulate in intellectual terms. The idea that great evil is attracted to great good and Reagan is possession as being great good, which is why she was the target of the demon. But of course, she wasn't the target of the demon. Yep. Borman, who was offered the original exorcist by Warner Brothers because he just made deliverance for them and you know Warner Brothers mm-hmm. wanted to stay in the John Borman business, not only turned down the film, he said this film shouldn't be made because it's all about the torture of a young girl. And this is the man they gave the sequel to? The man who thought yeah. the first film shouldn't be made? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, it, it was a... Uh... It would have been a more interesting movie if it had not been attached to The Exorcist. Yeah, I think is some of what it comes down to. The real problem is that it's about the demon Pazuzu. And they must say Pazuzu 20 times in the course of the film. In the original Exorcist, which is about the demon Pazuzu, nobody mentions Pazuzu. Because every time you mention Pazuzu, you sound like a, a glee club on the kazoo. And it's a stupid word. The demon actually exists in lore. But for Borman to use the name so much in The Exorcist was, I mean, Louise Fletcher, God bless her and rest her soul, said, at least I never had to say Pazuzu. But she did. It, yeah. it made the whole film more ludicrous. That and flying over the plains of Africa, staring up the ass of a giant grasshopper. I was no. going to say, like, I was very tempted to talk about how uh, I had to come on the wings of a giant locust in order to talk to you today. <laughs> <laughs> no, stick with the hedgehogs. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, but um, I I have not seen the uh, director's cut of Legion yet. Um, I saw the theatrical release of it. Mm-hmm. And the whole time that I was watching it, I watched it before I read the book. I, I was wondering why Father Morning existed and um, like how any of that was connected to everything else that was going on because everything else was far more interesting than the exorcism scene. But by the same token, you can't have a movie that's titled Exorcist 3 you know, without having an exorcism scene in it. That's it. That's so, why Nicole Williamson is there. It's, it's the, the, yeah. Chekhovian, the, the, the Chekhovian principle that if you bring a gun onto the stage in the first act, it has to be fired by the third act. If you make a movie with the word exorcist in it, you've got to have an exorcism. 
but it was uh, it was really interesting reading about you know what the original cut of it essentially was meant to be um before jason miller got brought back for it um yeah you know before all of that because i really want to see it now um because it seems much uh, closer yeah Shout Factory, Scream Factory has both versions available and they did a wonderful job. Now, mind you, the lost footage from Legion was only available on VHS screeners that the filmmakers used when they were producing the movie. And so um, William Peter Blatty and Mark Kermode, <coughs> Mark Kermode, my old friend, worked together with the production team to try to restore what would have been Legion. It's not what it really would have been, but it's as close as they're going to get. And yeah. it has just a world-beating performance by Brad Dourif, who yes. is absolutely chilling and captivating and utterly, utterly brilliant. Uh, as yeah, his scenes the in Scorpion. the cut are yeah. amazing. And, like, yeah. and, I, and they're even better in the full thing. Yeah. Oh, I, I 100% believe you. I, you know, as much as I, you know, loved Miller and The Exorcist, like Dourif was just magnifying, yeah. you know, in Legion. And, you know, it, I understand why they were bringing him back. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, he was not in shape to actually have the role. But, yeah. you know, Dora Jason Miller bring back. Yeah. yeah. I know. And they have to, you know, it's like if you have an exorcist film and they can bring back Father Karras, they should. It made it more confusing because it's all about yeah. one spirit inhabiting another body. And here we have two bodies. No, it's only one body. We're supposed to believe that he's changing shape. It, it doesn't quite work in that regard, but by the second or third viewing, it makes a lot of sense and certainly makes emotional sense, especially when you see the shots in the right order and you find out how the transition happened. Do you feel like it's getting a you know better afterlife now, um, you know, Legion? Because it's well, certainly it's the reputation is on the rise. I hope so. I hope my book helps bring it back, and I hope that Shout Factory is able to get more DVDs sold or Blu-rays. It's it's a remarkable job to compare the two films. And for those exorcist freaks out there, uh, uh, two of whom are talking at the moment, um, it's it's a very good thing to see. And I, I have to talk to you a little bit about The Ninth Configuration, which is the movie that nobody knows exists. <laughs> All right. Could you tell us a little bit about the bizarre history of this film? I'll try to give you the short version. Um, Blatty originally wrote a book called Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane, and it became called The Ninth Configuration for, for scientific reasons. And it's a story about a man who is sent to a, an, an asylum uh, where a lot of soldiers who have freaked out for various reasons have been confined, and his job is to try to straighten them out. Well, it turns out that he's also one of the patients, but he's not been told that. One of the other attendants at this asylum is supposed to be treating him. This is Killer Kane, who slaughtered a lot of people, but he doesn't remember that he did. He thought it was his brother. Now, it's already starting to get complicated, but what it's really about is about sacrifice. Not suicide, but sacrifice, because Blatty believes that if you can give your life to save another life, that's probably the most holy thing you can do. It's certainly what Father Karras does in The Exorcist. <clears throat> and that's what Killer Kane does in the Ninth Configuration. But getting there is the most bizarre, Pinteresque comedy that you can possibly imagine. And Blatty directed the film version himself, uh, supposedly set in the Pacific Northwest, actually set in Eastern Europe because that's where the money was available. And it's just a, 
a cockamamie movie, which is alternately funny and frightening and deeply moving. And the ending will tear your heart out, but not because it's a Lassie movie. It tears it out because you're on board with the philosophy of what happens. But I can't describe it any better than that. Blatty made it independently. He had it with Warner Brothers, and he didn't have it with Warner Brothers, and he brought it back to Warner Brothers because, let's face it, he had huge cachet at Warner, Warner Brothers because he'd made The Exorcist. The film has been seen in several different forums on video, all of them, I believe, recut in various ways while he was alive by Blatty. And yet, in any forum you see it, it's still a remarkable experience, but you got to watch it carefully. There's my, my version is an old VHS version I found on SLP speed. That's, I believe, the most complete, but I can't really tell. It's hard to find, but between or among The Exorcist, Legion slash Exorcist 3, and uh, Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane slash The Night Configuration, you have a trilogy of faith, which is pretty remarkable for the American film industry. Uh, it, it is one of the strangest films that I've ever seen. And it also just has stuck in my mind. You know, I can't get it out of my head. There's something just so fascinating about it. Because there's genuinely no other movie out there that's quite like it. it it's laugh out loud hilarious. It is incredibly jarring and horrific. And then it also, like, I cried at the end of it, and I was not expecting it. You know, it really just hits you out of left field again and again. And the performances in it are fantastic. Oh, my God. Everybody good is in there, all these character actors. Gladdy himself plays a role, too, as an attendant. Uh, it, it's it's yeah. remarkable. Um, in fact, the presence of Stacey Keach in the lead role is interesting because he was originally signed to play Father Karras. But then when Jason Miller came along, Billy didn't want uh, Stacy Keach. He wanted Jason Miller. And so Warner Brothers had to pay off Stacy Keach. And this, in a sense, casting him in the lead in Ninth Configuration is William Peter Blatty's way of both apologizing and uh, showing Keach how much he appreciated him. And you also have uh, Nicole Williamson in Legion um, as Father Morning, who was supposed to be Killer Kane in, yeah. in Ninth Configuration. So there's all this stuff going on. Yeah, you know, in there, or well, you're supposed to be Killer Kane or Cutshaw in that. Cutshaw, I think. Well, Cutshaw was played yeah. by, um, oh, uh, uh, not, all right, not 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 Scott Glenn, but uh, who uh, played played in um, in, in Cold Blood, Wilson, Wilson, Scott Wilson. Um, in fact, there's a bit of a, all right, this is this is like so minute, nobody will get it. In The Exorcist, the cocktail party where Reagan comes in and pisses on the carpet one of the guests is an astronaut and she says to the astronaut you're going to die up there now i asked mark kermode who knows exorcist back and forth is that the same astronaut who freaked out on the launch pad and who got put into the asylum in ninth configuration and he said absolutely not the timelines don't match but it's an interesting piece of trivia that i thought i'd bring out anyway i i want to believe it is because that just <laughs> makes it a perfect little trilogy right there well, you maybe know, there was time travel like Planet of the Apes involved. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I would buy it. Like, the Exorcist timeline is a little bit mucked up to begin with. Very true. So, you Very know. true. In, in the book, it takes months and months and months. And in the movie, it's two hours and three minutes. So and That's one of the yeah. things that I've been you know, wondering about, watching it all in such a short time period. You know, the, 
the story of Father, like Father Marin's backstory, he was supposed to have done an exorcism down in Africa. Um, they specify that he was supposed to exercise, have exercised this boy in Africa that took months and almost killed him. Mm-hmm. But then every time we see that backstory, you know, and it's various incarnations and, you know, heretic and the beginning and dominion, it doesn't quite fit that time frame and that level of difficulty I felt. So it's a movie. Some great. It's things. a movie. Yeah. It's just a movie. Yeah. What you just said that that one sentence is the entirety of the reference to Father Marin in Africa in the uh, yep. in the movie The Exorcist. There's nothing in the book really to speak of. Uh, well, you know, Cecil B. DeMille said, "Give me uh, any uh, ten lines of the Bible, I'll give you the damnedest film you've ever seen." So I guess it's okay to extrapolate <laughs> from one line in The Exorcist. Oh, it's fine. It, it's fine. And like Dominion was. Um, it was pretty great, though, with, uh, you know, Stellan Skarsgård as Marin. Like, I, th- I thought that that was an interesting movie. Um, it's Paul it, Schrader. You know, Paul yeah. Schrader has a background in both religion and filmmaking. It doesn't work for a couple of different reasons, but it's still a remarkable attempt at making a thoughtful movie about how Father Marin became Father Marin. And, of course, it was 90% reshot by Rennie Harlan after yes. the people at Morgan Creek determined Dominion didn't work. And uh, Exorcist, the beginning, was released first, and then they went back and allowed Schrader to finish his cut. And they're both available on video now. I, in the book, I say that there's a difference between the films, of course, but mostly, you know, Schrader's is very, Schrader's is very stately, and Harlan's is very peripatetic, shall we say. But the way I put it is that Paul Schrader made a film and Rennie Harlan made a movie. That's yeah, playing with words, but I, I think it's it, it pretty much fits. They're both interesting to watch. I think Schrader's is better. They're also really fun to watch back to back and just yeah. like have a little bit of whiplash with it. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of a, a cinematic Venn diagram, how they overlap. I feel like it's going to be like what seeing uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer back to back is going to be like. Like you're going to have a crazy time at the cinema. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you go first. I'm planning on it. I'll see if I make it, and then I can tell you how it works. Are they but, selling um, tickets? Are they selling tickets? You can see both of them are calling it Barbenheimer or something. Yes, they sure are. It's going to be an insane day. You know, it's great to see what the outfits people are putting together for it. But I'm waiting to see what people are going to be wearing for The Exorcist because, you know, I saw Nosferatu a while back, and I saw one of the best costumes just pull out you know vampire there in the back of the theater uh-huh. scaring the moviegoers so there'll be something interesting yeah cosplay was invented long after the exorcist so it's going to be interesting to go and see what happens yeah there's going to be something i know there's going to be something because you know the fans are definitely going to be there in the seats and i'm going to be among them i'm genuinely curious you know what's going to be you know, happening because if we're going to get a new trilogy you know it what we've gotten so far really runs the gamut in terms of genre, in terms of um, where they take the story. But it sounds like mm-hmm. it's going to be an interesting movie. Um, well, that's that's what the, I wrote the book about. Reports. You know, that's what I wrote the Exorcist Legacy: Fifty Years of Fear about, and that's what I hope uh, we can use it as a kind of a a guidebook, if you will, a reader to bring people up to speed if they weren't there to see the films when they were new. That that that's part of the experience you can never reclaim if, of course, you're younger. Yeah. And you're catching up with them now. So I hope, uh, do I hope you it think sells. 
I'm sorry. Do you think that we're going to get uh, The Exorcist on the big screen again prior to the new movie? You know, Warner Brothers has been making, yeah, I think they're doing something. I know the Motion Picture Academy is going to have a screening. It was just at the TCM Film Festival, if there's TCM anymore. Uh, yeah. But they're, you know, it, I think there's a new 4K coming out and it's going to be really interesting. I don't know what's going to happen. We're recording this in July and anything can happen between now and December if Warner oh, Brothers definitely. ever gets their act together. You know, Warner, the studio's in free fall right now. Yeah. Uh, and the actors are about to go out on strike. The writers are on strike. And Warner Brothers has a cranial rectal inversion since the merger with Discovery. So who knows what's going to happen? But I hope they pull it out, get their act together. And remember, The Exorcist made them a lot of money 50 years ago and could still do that. I hope they will, too, because seeing Jaws on the big screen was one of the highlights of my life. You know, it's a totally different experience from watching it, you know, in a drive-in or watching it, you know, just on your television or laptop. And so being mm -hmm. able to see The Exorcist like that, you know, with the proper surround sound, I think that would be just a breathtaking experience. And yeah, there's nothing like actually going to the theater for movies. You know, it's meant to be that sort of an experience. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm hoping that they'll get their act together enough for that because, man, it's one of the best films I've seen. And It is a real experience. Yes, good. Uh, I hope so, too. Yeah. Well, so what are you hoping for? you know, with the new trilogy? Is there anything that you're really looking forward to or hoping that I'm, they'll do? I'm I'm looking for book royalties more than anything else. And I hope that the trilogy inspires people to buy The Exorcist Legacy. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping the film has its own integrity and I'm hoping it works, but I'm not going to, you know, when I was a critic, I didn't really want to set anything in my mind before I saw the movie. I wanted the movie to kind of unfold in front of me on its own terms. I'm hoping that they're good. You, you go into oh. every movie hoping it's the best movie you've ever seen. And so I'm going to be optimistic about this. So what? where can people find you online? And uh, what are you working on right now, if you're allowed to say? I am certainly allowed to say they can find me online at www.natsegaloff.com. That's my website where, surprisingly, you can order books from Amazon and places like that. The book that is, let's see. I've got, I've got three books coming out in a row and that's because COVID had so stopped the publishers that I was, I kept on writing, but the publishers took a while to catch up. In addition to the Sherry Lewis book that came out from the university press of Kentucky last September and a novel I wrote called the town that said no, which is from bear manor media. Uh, I've got this book. I've got the exorcist legacy coming out from Citadel press. These are available on Amazon next month which is August, as I record this, is a book called Breaking the Code, Otto Preminger versus Hollywood Censors. And it's all about director Otto Preminger, who lobbied everything against the restrictive Hollywood production code back in the 1950s when he made a fairly innocuous film called The Moon is Blue. So it's all about how Otto essentially broke the production code and led us to the letter rating system, which we have now. It's backed with a play by Arnie Reisman and me called Code Blue, which is a comedy about Otto Preminger versus Joseph Breen, who headed the production code. And then in October, also from Citadel Press, I have coming out, Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface, which is about the 1932 and the 1983 Scarface movies, told with a certain perspective and also told politically and socially, as well as cinematically. And I'm very pleased that Stephen Bauer, who played Al Pacino's best friend, Manny, wrote the forward 
to say hello to my little friend and also is a great participant in the book itself. So it has that his imprimatur on the thing. So I'm hoping between The Exorcist Legacy, Breaking the Code, and Scarface, uh, I'll be able to retire in December and go back to writing what I'm working on now, which I'm not talking about. Yeah, fingers crossed for you, man. Thank you very much. And I've enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate the chance to plug away, but also the chance to talk to somebody who knows what she's talking about, about movies. Thank you very much. And uh, you know, I'm hoping that we'll get to talk again very soon. Well, I got two more books coming out. You've got my number. Yeah. <laughs> Nat's book, The Exorcist Legacy, is available from all good bookshops. My thanks to him for joining us. In October, we're co-hosting a two-day online gothic conference in association with Alex Davis, the organiser of the UK Ghost Story Festival. Nevermore, we'll see ten speakers come together to discuss various aspects of the gothic, and it'll be a mix of lecture presentations and interviews. There'll be Q&A sessions with each speaker, and the whole event will be recorded, with ticket holders getting access to the recordings afterwards. So, even if you can't be there on the day, you won't miss out. Topics include Catholic exorcism, Victorian fairy science, penny dreadfuls, Italian gothic literature, and much more. And there'll also be a live storytelling performance of ghost stories. We're keeping this event as cheap as we can for accessibility, so a one-day ticket's just £10 and a full weekend access ticket, £15. That's for all 10 talks and includes all the video replays. You can use the short link bit.ly slash nevermore23 or visit the Folklore Podcast website to get tickets. I hope you can join us. We'll be back soon with another episode of the podcast. If you can't wait until then, don't forget you can access extra content by supporting us on Patreon from just a pound a month. Visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast and help us to keep doing what we do. Thanks for listening. See you next time.